Welcome to World Policy on Air, a weekly podcast from the pages and website of World Policy Journal, published by the nonprofit World Policy Institute in New York. I'm David Alpern. In this week's program, posted September 22, 2017, we talk with World Policy Institute senior fellow James Nolt again about the limits of diplomacy, economic sanctions, and military options for dealing with increasingly nuclear and missile-ready North Korea. But first, some timely insights from global affairs analyst and author Michael Moran, head of Transformative.io, risk and geostrategy consultants, and a visiting fellow at the Carnegie Corporation of New York. Thanks, David. The search for a viable U.S. response to North Korea's intercontinental nuclear program has been underway for decades. U.S. intelligence knew of Pyongyang's nuclear ambitions as long ago as the 70s, and the U.S. quietly removed over 100 tactical nuclear weapons from its South Korean arsenals in the early 90s, in part because North Korea had signed the Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty, or NPT. In spite of almost constant diplomatic efforts to seal that deal, though, the North withdrew from the NPT and in 2006 conducted its first nuclear test. The rest is history. It's also simple calculus. Whatever anyone says, the possession of a nuclear weapon in the North has taken certain options off the table. For a variety of reasons, North Korea is not prone to threats of annihilation, mostly it's because it has a credible capability to annihilate back, at least against South Korea and possibly Japan. This used to be called mutually assured destruction, or MAD, in the U.S.-Soviet context. The label has never seemed more apt. So what actually can be contemplated? Further talks are the preference of many, backed with inducements, maybe economic, perhaps a lifting of sanctions. Some in the South even suggest a roadmap towards reunification, which in propaganda terms is what both sides claim they want anyway. But the North's record of breaking any agreement it chooses whenever it chooses makes critics of this route pretty credible too. And having come this far, would the North really negotiate away the ultimate guarantee of its survival? I think that's pretty unlikely. In fact, deterrence may be the least worst option. War will result in the deaths of tens of thousands and perhaps millions. Talk has often proven futile and probably will in the future with this regime. Sanctions only work when the nation's leadership is vulnerable and when it cares about the plight of its population, neither of which seems to be true in this case. There may have been many openings over the past several decades for more creative approaches at the negotiating table, but that is in the past. If we manage to survive the reckless threats currently going back and forth over the Pacific, the least best option may be to learn to live with a nuclear North Korea, and that may also mean living with a nuclear South Korea and a nuclear Japan, too. For World Policy On Air, this is Michael Moran. You're listening to World Policy on Air. Now this. Today, we are attempting to take the future of the North Korean nuclear program out of the hands of its outlaw regime. We are doing that by hitting North Korea's ability to fuel and fund its weapons program. The United States has great strength and patience. But if it is forced to defend itself or its allies, we will have no choice but to totally destroy North Korea. Rocket Man is on a suicide mission for himself and for his regime. It was a one-two punch at the United Nations that left more questions than it answered. First, U.S. Ambassador to the U.N. Nikki Haley touted the Security Council's latest economic sanctions on North Korea. 
including an almost 30% cut in its already restricted oil imports, a 55% cut in gas, diesel, and heavy fuel oil, plus more export restrictions. Then Donald Trump's General Assembly debut with the latest version of his earlier fire and fury threat. But the actual impact of both remained far from clear. In two recent posts on the World Policy blog, WPI senior fellow James H. Nolt addressed the problems with both military and economic approaches to the North Korean nuclear threat, and we discussed them the other day for this podcast. Dr. Nolt, welcome back to World Policy on Air. Thank you for inviting me. We'll talk about Trump's strategy, or at least his UN speech, after some basics. Let's start, as your latest post does, by outlining two opposing views of economic sanctions, the liberal theory of international relations versus what you call the rival realist theory. How do they differ? Well, the liberals suggest that sanctions are a powerful tool to induce an adversary to cooperate through negotiations. And the classic example of that, of course, was the Iran nuclear deal, which Trump now considers to have been the worst ever U.S. agreement. But nonetheless, it was made possible because of significant sanctions pressure. And on the other hand, uh, realists uh, tend to focus more on power and doubt whether economic sanctions alone can influence a country to give up vital security programs such as North Korea's uh, nuclear weapons program. Then there's your own corporatist theory, you call it, of the issue. Say more about that. Well, corporatism is the idea that private power and strategy matter a lot for international relations, including uh, business interests around the world. Uh, North Korea is a kind of special case since it, it really has very little private business, of course, but in terms of the other countries in the region and U.S.-China relations and so forth, business has a big impact. And uh, specifically, though, as far as the issue of sanctions go, I'm a little bit closer to the realists in doubting their efficacy, but for somewhat different reasons. I think that in many cases, like any economic policy, as sanctions uh, punishes some and, and benefits others, and those costs and benefits may be unequally distributed, and then it depends on the domestic political situation in a country whether the sanctions have the desired effect. Uh, you studied in some detail one dramatic example of sanctions actually backfiring, playing into an adversary's hands. Tell us when and where. Yes, in my PhD dissertation about the origins of World War II in Asia, I looked at the impact of sanctions on Japan. U.S. and other countries put economic sanctions on Japan during the year and a half or so before Pearl Harbor. And Japan at that time was deeply divided between economic nationalists who wanted to have uh, an independent, uh, autonomous Japanese economy that didn't depend on foreign trade and Japanese business internationalists who dominated the foreign trade sector. And of course, the sanctions injured the internationalists, but they were the ones most friendly to the United States and Britain. So we were really sanctioning our friends and in fact playing into the hands of the adversaries who had always said that trade was an unreliable way for Japan to survive and that it needed its own self-sufficient economic empire, uh, which could only be achieved by conquest. So it really played into the hands of the war party in Japan and helped contribute to the origins of World War II. What do you see as the parallels with North Korea today? Well, North Korea is a somewhat different case, but I think in North Korea, the key thing is that the, the ruling workers party is predominantly a party of led by retired and current military officers and almost all the leadership 
uh, has a military background and a military point of view, they're not so much concerned with economic development as they are with the threat from the outside world. And so the very small amount of foreign trade they have currently is dispensable compared with the very important to them nuclear deterrent that they're uh, right on the verge of perfecting. If ever broader economic sanctions can't produce enough pain to make Pyongyang back off its nuclear program, can they, as Ambassador Haley projected, reduce the regime's access to the narrow range of materials critical to advance that program? Or has that time passed? I think that's unlikely. First of all, uh, of course, much of what's been developed now is indigenous to North Korean. They've been working on these kinds of nuclear and missile developments for decades now. Second, uh, unusual or, or necessary new electronic equipment can come by air, it can come by rail. Um, there's no necessity that high-value technical equipment needs to come by sea. So uh, a sea blockade at most could only stop the remaining petroleum shipments, but of course that would mean stopping Chinese tankers, which would undoubtedly uh, be to a, uh, increase conflict between the U.S. and China. Neither North Korea nor its main supporter or defender, China, comes close to what we think of as a democracy. But you stress the importance of understanding the differences in their political systems and ruling hierarchy. Say more. Absolutely. The Chinese party has been dominated by engineers and managers who have an economic development outlook. And that's been true since Deng Xiaoping's four modernizations really got underway in the 1980s. China's become, of course, one of the world's most important economies and the largest trading country in the world. So it's deeply involved in and benefiting from international trade as, as everyone around the world recognizes with all the Chinese products for sale. North Korea, on the other hand, has been a very insular nation and has uh, very little trade. Just to give you an idea, although South Korea has doubled the population of North Korea, it has 200 times as many exports by value. So, uh, North Korea is barely involved in international trade. It's, it's a tiny portion of the economy and not significant to, uh, to the objectives of the regime. Remind us of the steps that China is already taking to influence North Korea to retard nuclear development and advance internal economic reforms like China's own. Well, that's the thing. I mean, a lot of Westerners aren't aware of is that China has been putting pressure on North Korea uh, over the years because China doesn't want North Korea to have nuclear weapons either. It, it recognizes that a North Korea with nuclear weapons is troublesome in the region. Also, uh, China has endeavored to influence internal politics in North Korea, which has induced the, the current leader, Kim Jong-un, to actually murder several people suspected of collaborating with China's uh, machinations in that country. So. Uh, they've also in, embarked on economic sanctions long before these current um, UN sanctions, including in 2013 when the Bank of China and several other major government-owned banks uh, closed the North Korean accounts. And so uh, they've had their own difficulties in trying to influence the regime, and that's part of the reason why they and the Russians are skeptical of sanctions. The Chinese pressure clearly has not halted Pyongyang's nuclear program nor jump-started economic reform. Is there more Beijing could do uh, to enforce UN sanctions, block more banking connections and critical supplies? And if so, why don't they? Well, they have been taking steps in that direction. Of course, the last two rounds of UN sanctions 
from all accounts, are being observed by China. China voted for them in the United Nations, and it, and it is cooperating. They did try to limit uh, the Trump administration's effort to get even more severe uh, sanctions on petroleum, in part because they fear that if uh, fuel is completely cut off to the north, they, they will uh, potentially collapse, and uh, China does not want chaos on its border. It doesn't want you know massive influx of North Korean refugees. They're already hundreds of thousands of North Koreans living in northeastern China. They wouldn't want to see that become millions. They wouldn't want to see instability in the possible security implications that could hold for China itself. So they, they want uh, to try to influence the regime, but without destroying it. What about Russia as a facilitator, purchaser, supplier of key materials? Russia has a tiny amount of trade with North Korea. It's, it's really only uh, measured in the tens of millions of dollars, which, you know, total uh, North Korean trade is in, in, on the order of three billion imports and exports in round numbers. So uh, uh, Russia's role in North Korea now is, is very tiny in terms of trade. It, it used to have, during the Cold War, very extensive trade, but that has all, all but collapsed. If indeed economic pressure cannot roll back or at least stop Pyongyang's nuclear program, let's consider the military options about which U.S. officials boast but say they prefer to avoid. Could a naval blockade do what sanctions cannot in cutting off exports and imports, at least of materials critical to the nuclear program? No, I think the naval blockade is, is a red herring. I don't think there's anything that it will accomplish. The U.N. sanctions uh, are largely enforced because of Chinese cooperation, as I mentioned, Supplies can arrive by rail overland from China and Russia, uh, so a sea blockade alone wouldn't stop imports if those countries were not cooperating. So we really have to work in conjunction with the neighboring countries, and they are cooperating. The problem is that tightening sanctions alone is not likely to change the regime's view. In fact, it's likely to intensify the view because, like I mentioned, the very fact that the outside world is threatening and now Trump threatens to utterly destroy North Korea is exactly what bolsters the regime in its desire to acquire nuclear weapons and missiles. And support for it. Is it clear to you and Pyongyang that an actual missile attack on U.S. territory would inevitably produce a counterstrike, base for base, city for city, or even the total nuclear destruction that Trump promised? Yes, I don't think there's any doubt that if North Korea launched an attack on the United States, that the United States would, would retaliate with massive force. I think it's very unlikely that the North Koreans would take such a suicidal mood, move any more than the Soviet Union uh, would have launched a suicidal attack on the United States during the Cold War. There's a certain logic to nuclear deterrence. And North Korea, being by far the weaker party, is not likely to be the one to initiate a war. Short of total annihilation, most analysts say even the conventional weapons of the North could devastate Seoul and much of the South. You say that's not quite so. No, it isn't. In fact, I, I've tried to trace back the origins of this false rumor, and I don't know who originally started spreading it, but there, there's this story that's been circulating in the media that tens of thousands of uh, North Korean artillery are poised to bombard uh, Seoul, and that's utter, utter nonsense. North Korea has tens of thousands of artillery, like many large armies, but they're deployed with the military units they support, and their range is far too short to reach Seoul, even if they were right up on the border, which would be a suicidal and ridiculous kind of deployment, since the artillery is meant to back the infantry to be behind the front lines. There are a, a small number, a few hundred uh, systems that do have the range to reach Seoul. They're all rocket-propelled systems, 
but they're only a few hundred. They're not tens of thousands. And they would have to be right up on the border. They're very large systems that are highly conspicuous. If they opened fire, they themselves would be attacked by South Korean and American firepower and quickly destroyed. So the idea that Seoul is held hostage by vast numbers of, of North Korean artillery is a complete myth. There's also a suggestion that a Japanese attack after another North Korean missile overflight might be less likely to trigger Pyongyang's retaliation. What's your view on that? Well, first of all, I think it's, it's very unlikely that uh, Japan would take such a step. At, at the most, the most I could see Japan doing is possibly shooting down a North Korean missile that seems to be uh, heading over its territory. But to actually attack North Korea, particularly without American cooperation, I think the chance of that is zero. Japan is not that adventurous, and it's not that powerful either. Well, you've said that the, the overestimation of Korean power and threat to the point of hysteria only vindicates its vision of nuclear power as the only route to survival. You also say the U.S. already has a better defense against a nuclear North Korea than it ever had against Russia or China. Interceptor Correct. missiles on nearby surface ships and submarines that could knock out a North Korean rocket in its earliest slow-rising boost phase. Say more about that technology and tactic. Well, the interesting thing is I've been blogging about this since last winter uh, when the issue of you know Trump's policy to North Korea and its nuclear and missile program uh, first became uh, widespread. And I noted that North Korea, as a relatively small nuclear power with uh, only dozens or scores of long-range missiles, probably compared with thousands that the Soviet Union uh, had at, at the height of the Cold War, could never pose the kind of threat that the Soviet Union did, and yet that threat was deterred by the fact that the U.S. had an, an equivalent force. North Korea is more vulnerable because it's a small country with coasts very close to the missile launch sites. American ships sailing in international waters and equipped with anti-missile missiles, which they all are, all the major ships are, could easily intercept North Korean launches in the boost phase. The uh, U.S. administration has not been talking about that capability until now. And I would suggest the reason they weren't talking about that technology is they wanted to hype the threat. If they said that we have an easy counter to that threat, people would not have been so alarmed. The, the issue would not have gotten to the U.N. It would not have been able to uh, be elevated to the point that it has and blown up uh, as, a, as a major international issue if the U.S. had simply said, well, in fact, we can station ships off the coast and intercept any likely missile launches if we wanted to, and so it's no big problem. They don't want to say that. But now, now that it's becoming more obvious that the sanctions are not going to work and that North Korea is continuing its missile program and its nuclear weapons development, now suddenly the media is discovering and the administration is apparently uh, beginning to suggest that the U.S. can and maybe will intercept future uh, North Korean missile launches. How vulnerable would the U.S. ships be to North Korean attack? Well, uh, frankly, I think that would be uh, part of the point, because if U.S. ships are close off, it's a little bit like what happened in the Tonkin Gulf during the Vietnam War. If U.S. ships are right off the coast but still in international waters, North Korea might be tempted to snoop them with uh, some of their numerous uh, small submarines, for example. But U.S. ships are, are very well equipped for anti-submarine warfare. The Soviet Union, which had vastly more technologically advanced submarines, was the main adversary throughout the Cold War when the U.S. Navy's technology was developed. So they're very familiar with detecting and uh, attacking submarines. If American ships near North Korea felt under threat from a submarine and chose to attack it, 
it would again be like the Tonkin Gulf uh, in 1964 that started the Vietnam War. It would be very difficult for anyone to prove who fired first and whether the U.S. ships were already under threat, but it would be a way to provoke a larger war if the U.S. chose to do it. Could we demonstrate this anti-boost phase capability closer to home against one of our own missiles, or would it require actually targeting a North Korean test firing? And, and would that be deemed something far less extensive, inflammatory, and, and less likely to escalate than some other forms of so-called preventive military action? Yes, there's two ways you could do that. One would be to test, as you suggest, against the U.S. missile to perform the test and to talk about it publicly. Uh, another way to do it would be if North Korea launched a missile to launch an interceptor missile to near the, the missile without actually intercepting it, you know, perhaps with a dummy warhead or, or maybe just fly by it, but make it clear that, that the U.S. demonstrated that it could have intercepted it had it chosen to do so. So, yes, there are ways of demonstrating the capability without being provocative. Up until now, the U.S. has been very mum about the capability, as I say, in part because they they want to overemphasize the North Korean threat rather than showing that it's containable. And what about the broader concept of preventive military action, trying to take out bases, uh, uh, launch facilities, uh, nuclear facilities? Well, the problem with that is that almost certainly starts a wider war because as soon as you're bombing and attacking with cruise missiles, the adversary, North Korea in this case, doesn't know when the next missile is headed for their headquarters. And so... Uh, that puts them in an immediate desperate mood where they're going to try to lash out in every way they can to to fight back. So I think that that would certainly be a recipe for an all-out war. Though the U.S. and South Korea would win such a war, they have the military means to do it. It would be costly, tens of thousands of lives uh, probably lost, including some civilians in South and, and many more in the North. So it would not be an easy thing, but uh, it certainly is... Uh, potentially possible. But I don't think it would be realistic to think that you can do pinprick uh, raids and, and without any response at all by the North. It, it doesn't seem like Kim Jong-un is the sort of leader to put up with that. Would strengthening the boost phase defense make a nuclear-armed North Korea a threat the U.S. could reasonably live with, as it did uh, with the Cold War's mutually assured destruction vis-a-vis -vis Russian and China? Could Pyongyang live with it? Uh, yes, uh, the U.S. could uh, live with a nuclear Korea in the sense that, number one, it would be suicidal for Korea to attack, North Korea to attack the United States. And second, if they attempted an attack and the U.S. were prepared with offshore, routine offshore patrols uh, to intercept such missiles, then the attack would be foiled. And, and also North Korea would be then, of course, obviously at war with the United States and the regime would be overthrown and destroyed. So either way, it looks like the North Korean threat is not the world-altering condition that it is so often hyped uh, to be these days. What about the expectation of Trump's political base, his own ego, and the lure of uh, far more broad public support and leverage if he were to um, make himself a wartime leader? Well, this is what I wrote about in my first blog on the North Korean issue uh, last winter. Is I think that it's very tempting to Trump, particularly since he's been stymied in so many of his domestic political initiatives, to show that he's strong and capable in, in the one area where he has considerable autonomy as commander-in-chief, that is foreign policy. He has no particular foreign policy successes, but the one time he took armed action when he bombed the Syrian airbase, or, or rather attacked it with cruise missiles, 
he got actually a lot of good press, even from the mainstream liberal press. He was, uh, uh, his action was, was well uh, received. So I think he might be tempted to think that uh, military action in Korea is one way both to enhance his popularity as a strong president and also to enhance his own power since, uh, in a wartime situation, he could use existing laws like the Trading with the Enemy Act to put sanctions or trade controls on China that he wouldn't be able to implement in a peacetime context. Even though we have to note it became clear within a day or two that that Syrian Syrian missile attack uh, didn't really produce any effective results. It didn't uh, it didn't go to the storage of chemical weapons. The airfield was back in use within days. Uh, It was it was shock and awe or or maybe you could say reality TV. Uh, turning to Trump's General Assembly address, uh, for all the focus on the latest Trump slur, does calling the North Korean leader Rocket Man have any real impact? No, I'm sure not. I mean, the North Koreans are certainly used to hyper- hyperbole and overblown bombastic rhetoric. This is this is the one thing they export with great regularity. <laughs> but uh, you know, the I think the most unfortunate comment he made was that the U.S. is prepared to utterly destroy North Korea because, of course, that just reinforces the viewpoint that the North has always been. Uh, putting out to its own people to justify its own repression and, you know, the hardships that the North Korean people suffer is that, you know, if not for us, you know, the North, the the vile American imperialists, the line goes, would be able to, you know, exterminate the Korean people. And so, you know, Trump, in a way, confirms the, the worst propaganda of the North Korean government by making such a statement. He should have distinguished between the regime and the people, as so many past presidents have done. Despite his escalation in rhetoric, was it significant that Trump did not uh, talk uh, about uh, threats, about so far harmless missile uh, uh, and nuclear tests and other provocations, but on the need for actual defense of the U.S. and its allies? Or is that wishful thinking? Well, I mean, he considers defense very broadly. I mean, the mere fact that North Korea has nuclear weapons, he considers to be an unacceptable threat to the United States. So I don't think his statement was meant to suggest that uh, he is willing to live with a North Korean nuclear, a nuclear armed North Korea in the way that we've been talking about. I think what it, what he's saying is that the, the mere existence of the rhetoric and the weapons is enough to constitute a vital threat against the United States. He's been saying that from the beginning. So where do you see the standoff with North Korea going from here? Oh, well, it's going to depend in part on uh, the reactions of the other countries. Uh, Trump sitting down with the president of, of South Korea, uh, President Moon, and also Prime Minister Abe of Japan uh, tomorrow to, to talk about the issue. It partly depends on what kind of cooperation he's going to get uh, from American allies in the region and also the reaction of countries like China. But I think uh, Trump will be increasingly tempted to take some kind of armed action, maybe beginning with intercepting North Korea's next missile test. Jim Nolte, thanks as always. Thank you. Dr. James H. Nolte is a senior fellow at the World Policy Institute and an adjunct professor at New York University. His recent posts are headlined Preventive War and Sanctions Inefficiency. Since we spoke, North Korea's foreign minister rejected Trump's General Assembly threat as, quote, the noise of a dog barking. The Swedish foreign minister called it the wrong speech at the wrong time to the wrong audience. 
German Chancellor Angela Merkel said she clearly disagrees with Trump and, quote, this is not an option, said Russia's deputy foreign minister. Leaders of South Korea and Japan were generally supportive. U.S. Defense Secretary James Mattis later said U.S. strategy is, quote, still a diplomatically-led effort, and Trump himself announced a new set of potential sanction targets, including North Korean textiles, fishing and manufacturing, as well as individuals who provide Pyongyang with goods, services, or technology. But Trump praised Beijing for ordering all Chinese banks to halt services for new North Korean accounts and wind down existing loans, though how quick or effective the impact will be, only time will tell. Trump's U.N. threat to withdraw from the Iran nuclear deal, unless it is renegotiated, was rejected as a closed issue by President Hassan Rouhani, who promised to respond decisively and resolutely to its violation. And many analysts warned that backing out would also undermine U.S. credibility in any further efforts to negotiate a deal with North Korea. Featured in the new WPJ Fall issue, Constructing Family, you'll find articles about blood ties, bureaucracy, and family violence in Japan, about U.K. immigration rules that put a special price on family unification, and about the downside of, quote, responsible paternity laws in Latin America. And listen next week when our podcast will begin to delve more deeply into those stories and others in the new fall issue. World Policy On Air is a production of World Policy Journal at the nonprofit World Policy Institute in New York. Interim editor Jessica Laudis, managing editor Laurel Jerombeck, podcast producer Isabel Vazquez. I'm David Alpern.